New school's hard, but I think the more that you do it, the more you realize you prepare for it the same as a, a regular event, even though you know that the consequence of playing well and not playing well are, you know, different to a tournament. You know, if you don't play good in a tournament, you go to the next one. The next one, well, new school, there really isn't a next one. It's like you either get through or you don't. This is The Tournament Code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, Jamie. I know you personally. We know a little bit about your golf career, what you're up to right now. But before we start there and talk about that, let's really go back to the beginning. What got you into the game of golf in the first place? My dad was a golf pro. Probably when I was about seven, he got the head professional job at Cronulla Golf Club. So it was kind of something I was always around as a kid, like, you know, most kids, I'm one of four. So after school, we'd kind of go and hang out at the golf club. Even if we didn't play golf, we were kind of just like hanging out, running around the shop, you know, ripping ripping around on the golf buggies. You know, just that was kind of our home, our second home. So that's kind of how I got into it. I was kind of always around it. You know, some people, they're practicing from six or five, you hear these days, but I was... I probably didn't get into it till I was about 11 or 12 years old. I started getting the bug to want to get better at it. But I was exposed to it from a very young age. And, you know, I got two brothers and a sister and they were both, you know, they were all there as well. So it was one of those things we all just did it. It was part of our, you know, some people go to the gym with their parents and go play in the playroom while we, we kind of were at the golf club hanging around, just around golf. And that's kind of how I got my start. At what point did you get into playing tournaments and what does the junior golf scene look like in Australia? So I got into it, like the junior, the junior tournaments I got into were, I mean, I wasn't very good. I mean, I was probably still off a 36 handicap when I was 14. So I wasn't good. I mean, I practiced so hard and I didn't get better, but I, I had a free coach. So the avenues in Australia are pretty a little similar to here. So you have like a, it's called the Jack Newton Junior Golf Foundation. They they host events in the summer during your school holidays that you would play. And if you get, you know, get good into those and do well, you can get picked into some like teams to represent your state. But I never got in any of that because I was shooting 120 most times I was going out. I think my first round I, I recorded at Cronulla when I was 12 was like 148. I still remember it like yesterday. <laughs> so that's kind of the avenue I got into. When I got to about 16, I was starting to get good. So every club kind of has like a weekend tournament once a year where they have their cup event. So it might be the Cronulla Cup, 18 holes, or the Lakes Medal might be a 36-hole event. So I started playing in those, started winning those, which which was good. And I kind of went from 15 to 18. The trajectory was quite, you know, quite steep on the up, which was good. And, you know, I got my handicap down pretty low. I started winning a lot of that stuff. And then it kind of just snowballed into, you know, I played in our state team and the state team was great. So from that, we'd get sent around the country and then I got picked in the Australian team and it kind of just kept morphing from there to the Australian Institute Sport. And then, you know, before you knew it, in a space of, you know, probably three or four years, you're probably traveling six months of the year between Australia and New Zealand and then the US and UK. And it was a pretty, you know, cool experience. But my, my junior 
career comparative to a lot of my friends that I've played on tour with is probably very different. So when you traveled to the U.S. with the Australian national team, like what tournaments did you guys compete in and how were those courses set up differently? And like just how were the tournaments different overall from those in Australia? So the first ever tournament I played in the U.S. was the Sunny Hannah Amateur which is up in the Northeast, one of the, you know, I didn't know at the time, but obviously one of the bigger events. And I remember the, the funniest thing was the greens were so fast, but they were soft. And in Australia, it's kind of the opposite. When you play on really quick greens, they're like concrete. So most of the time, you know, if you've got 160 to a pin, you're probably landing at 150 and it's taken one big bounce and stopping. Where at Sunny Hannah, I remember, you know, like, you could fly it up to the pin and it would stop, but the greens were lightning quick. So that was like the first thing I remember that was like completely different to Australian golf. And then probably the next thing was the rough. I'd never seen rough that green and that thick because our course is more tree line. We don't have a lot of rough under the trees, I suppose, um, but it was just different grasses and a lot. It was just very lush and thick. Yes, yeah, so that was my first ever tournament over in the states over here and you know you're starting to play with people that kids that you see their names a lot i actually got beaten a playoff that week it was my first ever event here and i uh, i remember i bogeyed 17 every single day and even in the playoff and i got beat by michael sim and also nick thompson was in the playoff and i remember i was like so happy like i I played really nicely and I remember calling my dad and going like, this is where I want to be playing golf. Like that was the first thing I said to him. I was like, it's such a good, good time. And from there, I started getting invites into a lot of other events like the Northeast and Monroe, like tournaments that I wasn't in. I played with a guy named Duke Delger, who was from uh, South Carolina. He, he run the Players Amateur. So I played with him two days and he, he kind of said to me, hey, any tournament you want to get in, let me know and I'll call the tournament director just as I suppose there's a bit of credibility like how hey, I've played with this you know guy he's he's got a good game and he's not just taking a spot up in the field you know he's competitive so that was my first event and over here we kind of rolled into I played the southeastern down in Columbus Georgia because again it was my first time here I hadn't you know I was just playing what I got into I think I had a pretty decent week there at a top 10 I think I finished seventh which was a good start then we played the Dogwood Invitational um, at Druid Hills Golf Club and then you kind of rolled into the players the rice planters in Charleston South Carolina which was like probably still one of the funnest weeks because you know for us being Australia it was like on a beach it was very laid back I mean it definitely wasn't like an awesome golf course but it was a fun really fun experience just because you had the water I stayed with a really cool family that had like this outdoor shower that was like awesome and then we'd play like the Porter Cup the Western you know then the USM and that was kind of our summer loop over here. How did you prepare for tournaments like coming over beforehand how did you prepare and then once you were here what did you do to get yourself ready because that's a tough stretch to play that many tournaments in succession especially being away from home yeah so that's a really good question preparation wise really nothing different like you just I mean my golf club I grew up at was a private club but we had no range you know small putting green so you're literally hitting balls up the fairway in between groups and like you could have 150 balls out there and you're trying to fish your golf ball out of you know amongst all of mine um, which is 
crazy when you come over here and you see, you know, like it, it just wouldn't happen over here. So practice-wise is usually we'd hit balls very early or late. And then, you know, we did a lot of stuff that we weren't supposed to. You know, we are breaking the law, but not really. We'd go to like local schools and hit balls on their ovals. So Cronulla High School was down the street. So we used to, you know, during school, I'd go and hit golf balls on their field. And just if it was PE on, I'd hit down the other way. So I was hitting away from them. But they started building big fences around the schools to kind of stop that. And then, you know, we always had a way to get in or park your car close to see it. You know, at least hop over and hit balls and then you'd kind of work out later how to get out. So that was no different. Coming here, the biggest learning curve was I'd never played as many events in a row. So I remember getting to the Porter Cup and I don't know how many weeks in a row I'd played, but it, you know, it might have been seven or eight weeks in a row. I you know, was lost. I couldn't hit, I mean, literally couldn't hit a cow on the backside from three feet in front of me. I mean, I just didn't know where the ball was going. And when I got back to Australia, eventually I kind of realized I can't play every single week, like seven, eight, nine weeks and try to compete at a high level. And the biggest thing too is like a kid from Australia, from a a little golf course with no driving race, you know, and you start going to these tournaments with, you know, hundred yard wide, ranges with unlimited pro v's phenomenal chipping grain short game i mean i was like trying to pack in a year's worth of practice and you know in a five-week stretch because i'm like you know i could hit wedge you know like hitting wedges to a green was like is unheard of like in australia if you get caught hitting more than two or three balls like it was a, a ladder to you at home and you know you'd probably get a talk new by the board and here you've got wedge green so I probably over-practiced and then, you know, how golf is, you get the ebbs and flows, like you have it and then you don't have it. And then, you you know, if I didn't have it, I was a hard worker, so I didn't mind hitting balls and, you know, unlimited pro Vs and thing. And then you just, you're kind of doing more harm than good looking back because sometimes you're probably better off to step away and go, you know what, I'm not going to grind. I'm going to think about what's going on, think about it logically. And then tomorrow when I get to the course, I'm going to, on my practice day, I'm going to, my goals are to do, you know, X, Y, Z, and that's my goal. I'm going to only hit, you know, a hundred balls or whatever, and I'm going to play, I'm not going to spend, you know, play 18 holes and, you know, hit three or four pyramids after it and then putt and then chip and, you know, so on, so on. Absolutely. You mentioned you're a hard worker and earlier you said, you know, I was a 36 handicap at the age of 14 and was working hard, just it wasn't happening. Then all of a sudden you had this almost meteoric rise as far as like improvement in golf ability over the span of four years. What do you credit that growth and improvement to? I always worked really hard because I wouldn't say that I was like naturally talented. I mean, I had great hand-eye coordination and I worked really hard. But I don't know, just for some reason, I was always a little later than people my age but I just kept working really hard and I don't know I I, th- I guess it just once I started getting it I got it and I just kept going and going but I always worked just as hard and I guess it just kind of eventually the light bulb went off and you start winning some events you know and you keep winning and doing well and then before you know it you know your your trajectories change your schedule changes your opportunities 
you have more opportunities to compete in other events. So I think it was just a matter of me working it out, which I couldn't exactly tell you what was better or what was worse. It was just a gradual progression. But once I got it, you know, I just got really hot for probably, honestly, for three or four years there, I, I got, you know, as an amateur, I, I, I won a lot of tournaments and, you know, did well traveled well with my game as well it wasn't like just local stuff that i i played good at my local club you know like i was traveling playing a lot of events and i wasn't we weren't winning i was having you know good finishes um so it was a it was just yeah i don't know it's hard to put your finger on it but it just you know just worked out (laughs) do you remember a specific like low round or tournament that you won where you're like you can look back and you're like, this is the point that that light bulb went off. You know, I started to get it. I remember the Australian amateur. I played really well one year, but I didn't win. But I, next week there was a tournament in Canberra. I, was, I think it was the ACT amateur. It was a four round tournament at Royal Canberra Golf Club. And I, um, I won that week. And I remember telling everyone like, you know, you're telling your dad at home, like, hey dad, I'm playing good. I'm just just it's just not clicking for me or whatever and he'd he'd always be like well just be patient you know you know your week will come and then i remember winning that and that was a good even though i was a week late because obviously you want to win the australian amateur it's like you know our biggest amateur event in australia i i was like that's you know it kind of gave me just filled the tank up and put more fuel on the fire so to speak where i was i knew i could do it and i was motivated to you know keep traveling and and playing events so that was probably the first first event that i four round tournament that i won that i was really like okay i've, I've won a lot of one day events and two day events but now is the time to you know i won that and i kind of had the belief like okay well, if i can do this i can beat all these guys that i was playing absolutely so you played on the australian national team you know you travel over us you say to your dad hey this is where i want to be you have a nice little stretch of tournaments what happens after that in your career? What what do you decide to do and how do you progress? So I um I came over to the US three years in a row, did that amateur circuit, and the reason I probably didn't turn pro earlier was because I was taking advantage of our system we have in Australia. Because like, you know, if you turn pro, now you gotta pay for everything yourself, which all I've done is play golf. So I don't have like a big bankroll in my bank. It's like, all I've done is play golf and it's, you know, all been paid for because I worked and it was kind of the compensation for me working hard at my game was they will send me away to play and travel. So I played three years over here. And then when I just finally decided to turn pro, I guess it was in 2008, I got some uh, sponsors invites into some events, but it was almost like junior golf starting all over again. So you kind of, you're at a, a pinnacle of my amateur career, I suppose. Like we had a lot of great amateurs. We had like, you know, Michael Sam, Won Jun Lee, Andrew Tampion, Ashley Hall. I mean, there was a bunch of really, really great players. And then I turned pro and then you start at the bottom again. So now you go on the golf courses you haven't ever played. And you're playing with a bunch of people that don't give a rat's who you are, what you've done. Like, you know, you're basically, it's, you, you eat what you kill. So that was probably the, it was almost like playing to a certain degree, like 
club golf for me at the start because it was like okay and, and i didn't i played solid when i first turned pro like i was making carts playing some good events but it was a big eye-opener because it's it was a lot different to amateur golf it was people didn't care there was a lot of ex, a lot of guys that were beating me that i thought that you know there's no way this guy's going to beat me you know and then but they were so good about knowing what shots to hit when if they weren't playing good know how to get it around and shoot par where i was still young and you still you know you're hitting shots that you think you could hit but you probably shouldn't hit it and if i wasn't playing well I couldn't manage my game as well as a lot of these guys that have been doing it for a job. That's kind of, I turned pro in 08, 09. I went to, uh, I, I had a friend, Aaron Price, who played on the PGA Tour over here. He's, a little, he's actually just started a podcast as well. So Aaron was on the PGA Tour. He was a junior at my club when I was there and he had a house in Jacksonville Beach. He said, hey man, if you want to come over and do uh, Q school, he goes, you're more than welcome to stay at my house and practice at tpc sawgrass and i'm like you know hell yeah i'm i'm in so i i flew over here and i um i got through first second made it all the way to finals in 09 and that was probably a big aha because i mean i was at final stage of q school at bear lakes down in florida and you know i'm playing with i played my practice rounds with ricky fowler because he was he was actually doing some of the Monday qualifiers in 09 and his caddy Joe Scovran at the time was, you know, sleeping in our hotel rooms and a few of my other friends that were caddying. So we kind of all knew each other, but it was just a surreal because I remember Todd Hamilton, you know, British Open winner, David Duvall. It was just so many people that I'd seen their names on TV from Australia as a kid on the PGA Tour that I'd never had played golf with and it was kind of just like a real eye-opening thing like I, th- I remember I played with uh Jesper Parnovic for a round I played I think I played the first two rounds or last two rounds with Cameron Tringali uh, I remember one of the practice rounds I'm trying to think of his name Josh Broadway he's there he said hey can we can I play through and I'll never forget I mean cross-handed grip on this par three and just flushes it and I thought he was like joking and then like now the guys like now he plays cross-handed so that's i had status I, did, I i remember the first round was super windy i think i shot it was either high 70s or might have even been 80 but i had a stretch where it was like super windy and i had like you know i was might have been six over through nine and i remember i didn't shoot another round over par i think i shot par or better the next five rounds because it used to be six rounds then so i finished around a hundredth so it gave me status. I got a few starts, and that's kind of how I got to the United States and started playing golf here. But I didn't do any good that year. And really, from 2010 to 2016, I was just playing in Australia. Like I was playing, you know, Vanuatu Open, you know, Samoa. I mean, anywhere where I could go to make money, I was. I was kind of going there and playing and yeah, I didn't get, I got full status in 2016 for the Corn Ferry Tour here, which was good because I played, actually I played China Tour for three years. I played one Asia, you know, I played basically just was in Asia for the five years on and off trying to, trying to 
cut my teeth and make it make it back over here. What did you learn playing in those overseas events, you know, in China, et cetera, and then coming back over here and playing over here? Like, tell us a little bit about the differences and everything you learned along the way. Cause I know that grinding on the tour like that, you know, not making a lot of money, not having like a heavy bankroll behind you or anything like that. Like it can be, it can be a hard life. Yeah. Asia was, uh, Asia was fun. Cause I had a lot of friends, you know, like I was, had a lot of friends my age that I grew up in Australia that were playing there. So it wasn't lonely. Um, it was a lot of fun, but obviously just culturally it's so different. Like, you know, spending, you know, I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. So there's some weeks that are a lot more fun off the golf course than other course, other weeks. But the, probably the biggest thing is like the grasses, uh, golf courses are in, nowhere near a condition that we have over here they got different grasses they don't have the budgets like they do here food can be very challenging especially like in china you know you can you pretty much eat for breakfast what you ate for dinner the night before that's you know which is which is that's their cult you know that's what i'm saying it was just culturally different and then it was just super hot humid hot but it was a lot of fun um, but I learned that, you know, I didn't want to be doing that forever. I remember someone telling me that there was a lot of guys that go to Asia and kind of get stuck there. Cause I remember speaking to a few guys from Australia that were on the U S and they had status in Asia and didn't go. And they said, listen, we could go to Asia and have a nice life, but a lot of people get stuck there. And if you, if you look back at the books over the years, there's been a lot of great Australian players, for instance, that have been able to play really well up in Asia and they kind of get stuck, not stuck, but comfortable there because you can live quite cheaply. You know, if you live in, say, like Thailand, like Black Mountain does a membership for a lot of pros. So you can live cheaply, you know, eat great food, have great practice facilities. But, you know, ultimately the goal is to be playing with the best players in the world. And that's, you know, obviously going to be either in the US or europe or japan you know so that's that's where you're trying to get to so when you got back to the corn ferry in 2016 did you get there from your finish on the china money list or did you go back to q school and get through that way so uh i actually got through i think it was like one of seven or eight guys that made it from first stage all the way through to finals so that's how i got my corn ferry status i got got through q school and then I had to go back, I think it was 20, uh, 2018, I had condition, I finished like 80, I think I was in the final event, I was like 73rd and I missed the cut and I finished like 80th or something like that. So I went back to Q school, re- regained my status and then I had full status until I lost it in 2021, at the end of 2021. What did you learn going back to Q school that next time and making it all the one making it all the way through in that 2016 time and then going back again later what what sort of things did you learn along the way that's a good question i probably you know you just learn a lot over your career like how to deal with dealing with emotions and pressure i think that q school is just so hard like not hard as in you know, it's as hard as you make it, but it's just hard because the numbers don't work for you. Like there's so many guys that 
never make it out there or spend a lot long time trying to get their card and then they get it and get to the PGA Tour because it's just one of those weeks that if you just have a bad round and not even a bad round you just have a bad hole you know and have it double or triple I mean you can blow yourself out of the water and you got to wait around for another 12 months and you got to do that three times which is super tough and there's no stage that's easier than another stage but it's just it's just hard because the numbers don't stack towards you there's so many good I mean I remember doing Monday qualifiers you know with Brian Harmon I mean Brian couldn't get his Brian couldn't make it through Q school you know and he was like a US junior champion super good guy great player but you know he missed I don't know how many years in a row two three years in a row I mean and obviously had a great he's had a great career one you know and he's just he's one of these guys that's going to be out there as long as he wants to pursue it but there's so many guys like him and then you hear stories of you know, guys like Freddie Couple. I mean, there's so many guys that went to Q school like a bunch of times. Chris DeMarco's like over the years. And it's just Q school's hard. But I think the more that you do it, the more you realize like, okay, this is just another week. It's another tournament. And you prepare for it. You prepare for it the same as a, a regular event, even though you know that the consequence of playing well and not playing well are you know, different to a tournament, you know, if you don't play good in the tournament, you go to the next one, the next one, well, Q school, there really isn't a next one, it's like, you either get through or you don't, but I suppose the biggest thing is level heads prevail, because there's a lot, you know, Q school's a week where you don't need to be a hero, you just go and shoot two or three under a day, for most, you know, if you look at all the courses over the years, if you shoot one under a nine, you pretty much would make it through. Now, the last few years, the courses have changed and players have gotten a lot better, so it's probably not two under a day is going to get you through. You probably need to be at 12. But, you know, if you if you look at it and go, okay, if I shoot two under on the front, one under on the back, and I do that four days in a row, 12 under is probably going to make it through every single stage, which is completely attainable. Over that time, you got, as you said, you got that status in 2016. You got out there and then you got, and then you had conditional status and got back on again. Tell us a little bit about what it was like finally having that status in 2016 and playing the full series of events. It was awesome. The coolest thing was just being guaranteed events. So I remember you get guaranteed the first eight events. I remember I'd missed my first four cuts in a row to start with, and I wasn't, you know, I was like, geez, man, like, here we go again, I've got my card, you know, and you start feeling the pressure of, okay, i got to perform, i got to perform. And I remember I was not hitting my irons that great, so I ended up changing irons, which is something I'd never done. I hit a Mizuno demo club down at Druid Hills. I was hitting it high, and the pro was like, hey, why don't you try this shaft? There's a KBS 130X, and I was like, yes, we don't try it. So I hit balls, it was in a six iron. And I remember looking on the track, man, and my spread pattern was like, you know, like this, and then with my tightest irons, it was, you know, way bigger. So I rang the Mizuno rep because they were like in in uh, Georgia here, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll build your set. You can pick them up tomorrow." So I picked them up, and I flew straight from there to Corrales, which where they're playing this week in the Dominican Republic, and 
I think I sh- I had a really good played really well. I think I finished just if I didn't top ten, I finished just outside the top ten, and kind of had a good week there, which gave me status for the rest of the year. And I suppose to answer your question, just knowing your schedule is really big, and then just learning how to manage your schedule too, like what weeks you're gonna play and what what you're not. And probably earlier in my career, when I talk about like 2018. When you're not, you, you set out a schedule and you go, okay, I'm going to play, you know, these three events. And then if you miss the three cuts and you're going to have the fourth week off, well, then you you end up going, well, I'm going to play the fourth because I've missed the three cuts. Right? And then you miss the fourth and you just keep pushing. So the biggest thing, I suppose, when I started playing better was being disciplined in what events I'm going to play and sticking, making a plan and sticking to the plan because... When I started going through it with my coach, you know, he looked at my schedule and he goes, okay, it's pretty simple to see what events you play good in. He's like, you make all your money in seven or eight events. And, and you start looking at it and you're like, yeah, I really, I always play really good in Greenville, South Carolina. I've really played good in Columbus, Ohio. I play good at, you know, Nashville. I play really well. So, so you start cherry picking the events you, you, you want to play and you got to obviously back yourself, but previous to this year on the PGA Tour, I mean, most of the guys in the top 10 to top 20, they might play 15 events in the majors because they just cherry pick the ones that they that they want to play. And it's not not because they don't want to play the other ones, it's just some courses you don't play good. Like my coach will say, like, I remember Bogota, I'd missed the cut four years in a row in Bogota, and I said to my coach, I was like, I love Bogota. He's like, why do you like bogey? He goes, you miss the cut. You just waste your, waste your money every time you go there. He goes, for whatever reason, you don't like the golf course. It doesn't suit your eye. I was like, no, nah, I want to play Bogota. I love the, the week. It's a great week. And I, play. and I remember in 2020, I guess it was right before COVID, I, um, I think I finished 12th there. And I remember feeling so good because I was like, told you. <laughs> but historically... You know, I didn't play play good. So you can you kind of look at even anybody's career you pull up on the PJ Tour. I mean, there's weeks that guys play really. I mean, this week in Corrales, Ben Martin last year had a chance to win. He missed that putt 18. I saw he had a top 10 or just around the top 10. There's guys that play good at the same courses every single year because those courses suit their eye, and for whatever reason they feel comfortable on it. And that's probably the biggest thing is learning, okay, what events am I going to play? Which ones do I like? Which ones don't I don't I do as well in? And and trying to work it, is it, why do I not do good in it? Is it because it's a fifth event in a row? Is it because I don't really like the layout? I don't like the grass? You know, working all that stuff out is just trial and error. But that's that was probably the biggest thing. I'll say early in my career, I played a lot of events in a row and then towards the end was being disciplined about, okay, here are the events that I played good in. They're my priority. What am I going to play leading up to those events? Like, do I want it to be the first event of my next run or do I want it to be the, if I play three in a row, do I want Savannah to be my third event or do I want it to be my second event? So you kind of pick those events and then build your schedule around it and and go from there that's beautiful it's not, i mean it sounds like you got like really good at that over time and nobody would be good at that at first but that's something that's common for all of the corn fairy tour players that we've had on the podcast they've always mentioned how hard it is to take weeks off and how necessary it is 
when you do take a week off, what is that? What does that week off look like? So for me, uh, my coach was in Hilton Head, South Carolina. So for me, my week off was I'd pretty much get home on Monday. I'd either spend Monday at home with the family, and then I would jet off to South Carolina for two days. I'd spend two days with my coach, come back, and then you know I'd be practicing or working on whatever I my coach has given me, and then. At the same time, I'm trying to do stuff with my family and, you know, cut my grass and do all the stuff around the house that's gone to, gone to shit since I've been gone. <laughs> um, so that was even, to be honest, like something that's probably underrated too is like, remember we bought our house in 2016. I mean, just having a house added another complete layer. You know, we bought a house. I had, my son was born in 2016. So you start you know, your life changes, like your priorities. Like when, you know, when I was 21, when I got home, I mean, I, I didn't have to do any stuff around the house. I just go to the golf course every day. And um, I suppose as life goes on, you've got blocks of time. And as you get older, your time starts getting taken because, you know, you got to pick your kid up from school. You got to go to a soccer game or you got to cut the grass or you got to go do something with your wife's friends or so managing those weeks off was a juggling act because my priority was I got to see my coach. That's my absolute number one priority. My other priorities, obviously, I got to see my family and I got to try to rewind and recharge. But the weeks off were probably more harder than a tournament week because I'm changing stuff. I'm working really hard, but it, seeing my coach gave me a lot of energy. Like, okay, if I put the pedal down, I know that the direction is going to be this way because before I felt like I was going this way or even downhill. So I, my week off was see my coach, know where I'm at with my game, what i got to work on, you know, spend time with my wife and son, get stuff done around the house, kind of go to the pool, do whatever it is, hang out. And then when I get to the next tournament, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to practice, set some time away to practice and work on the stuff. And then, you know, off we go again for another spell and, it was kind of rinse and repeat for, you know, 18 to 20 something events. You know, I played three, three to four in a row, and then I'd do that kind of over and over. Who was your coach and how did you get connected to him? I was seeing Colin Swatton, who you obviously know he was Jason Day's coach and caddy for the longest time. So, kind of when they split, I wanted to see him when I first came over, and he was really good he just said listen to do this correctly i don't have the time because i'm away too much so i kind of just work with the local guy jeff nelson who's down at sea island at my club he was awesome you know we'd just get in the track man and hit balls and he'd he'd keep me very accountable and we'd practice a lot together which was fun but cole was probably a big notch up in just everything from coaching to biomechanics to setting a schedule to how to walk a golf course, what to look for in your practice rounds, how to schedule your week, how to pick tournaments. So he was great. And then obviously, so when he and Jason went from just, instead of being coach caddy to just coach, I started ringing him again. And he was like, shit, man. He goes, if you're at this persistent if you're half is if you practice half as much as you annoy me on the phone for me to give you a lesson, he goes, We're gonna yeah, he goes, I'm gonna I'm gonna see you. So, yeah, we kinda started seeing each other and 
and it was a it was a fun you know a really fun relationship and good uh it was a great learning experience for me and then you know we just went from went from probably mediocre to he got my game to probably the best it, it ever had been you know from there i suppose COVID happened and you know, it's kind of a bit of a, you know, the last three years probably or two years probably been a bit of a blur, to be honest, because I was like, I went from, you know, almost having my PGA Tour card in 2019 to back on the Corn Ferry Tour and then COVID hit and, yeah, you get stuck at home for six months and, you know, I kind of enjoyed, it was the first time that I actually got to sit at home probably since I was about 16 and I was like, man, this is pretty nice, like, you know, sitting yeah, sleeping in your own bed and having dinner and you know I wasn't playing I wasn't playing as well when I went back after COVID and then after I lost my card it was kind of like what the hell happened <laughs> I get I get that before we kind of get to what did happen let's talk a little bit more about um your coach you said hey you step up in biomechanics step up as far as like kind of knowing what to do out there what are some specific things that you learned from him about your swing or about golf in general I learned so much. I mean, pretty much from the ground up, just um, just being able to met, you know, just literally everything, like keeping statistics, you know, having less variables, practicing with more of purpose, like using alignment sticks, having mirrors down, like just checking all the all the little things that you can check. You know, like he would always say to me, like like this mirror and this T-square, they're my eyes when I'm not here for you. Like, so when you're on the road, he goes, I don't want you to come back and, you know, your feet are aiming left and your shoulders are aiming right or you know so it was like when when we worked together we di- i didn't want to spend a day of like going over the stuff that we were doing the month before the month before like he was like okay your alignment's great we we're working on your hips shoulders they look great so that was a real big thing is just you know knowing what to practice when to practice managing my schedule and just knowing you know, having a guy that got someone a number and the one in the world, it wasn't like, oh, I hope he knows what he's doing. Like he knew, he know knew what he was doing. He was, you know, I still believe he's probably the best coach in the world that I've been around. And he's just got a system, and he's like, you know, if you want to get from where you are to here, this is how many hours you got to do, practice-wise. This is how much you need to see me. You know, and honestly, it was just a, it becomes, it starts becoming a financial thing because it's like, you know, the more time you want to spend with them, the more, the more money it costs. And it was just juggling how much money I'm earning to how much money I can afford to pay my coach. And that, that's kind of, that's kind of it, you know, with him. Um, it was just, he, he did everything great, you know, from, and then cat, even catting, like having my caddies go there and, and saying to the caddy well you know how do you how do you walk the golf course you know and the caddy's like well i walk around he's like well what about that bunker there and he's like well, what about it? he's like hey well have you been in the bunker no you know and he had lots tons of information you know like you know he'd rate like a bunker from one to three like you know one is it's fine two it's kind of 50 50 three it's absolutely dead so like i'd get on a hole and i'd go okay i'm gonna hit two on here he's like well why don't you hit driver and i'm like well well, there's a bunker there. He's like, well, have you been in the bunker? And I was like, no. He's like, well, go have a look at it. So we go up there and he's like, the first question you got to ask yourself, is the penalty a penalty? So when I hit in that bunker, he's like, let's just say you do hit in the bunker. If the penalty is not a penalty, you know, what, why not take on 
that risk. But if it's something that's going to be absolutely dead, absolutely. So like that was probably a real big thing too, just like learning how to learning how to play a golf course and how to attack it and having a strategy and having a caddy that can sit there and go, okay, here's two iron. And I'm like, no, well, I want to hit three wood or driver. No, we said it's two iron. We've got to hit it 245 down here. Here's your two iron and walk, walking away. So the coaching side was phenomenal, but I suppose the course management caddy side of it was, was next level because you've got a guy that, you know, was out there with the number one player in the world winning. Yeah, they won 20 times worldwide, you know, won a major, and he's, you know, friends with Tiger, you know, Jordan Spieth, like all the best of the best, walking around with their caddies. I mean, he knew, he just knew how to play play the golf course. So it was just always a matter of, you know, it was like I was like a race car. He's always just trying to tune you up and going, okay, the way to, it's like a game of chess. You just got to be one one step ahead of the golf course, like a game of chess. And, you know, you want to go from here to here, from here to here, where to hit on the greens. And that was really it. It was literally just like a game. So it was just a matter of could I, if I was hitting it really well, you know, like he would, you know, he even said even like with when Dustin Johnson and Jordan were dueling it out, you know, he's like, look, Dustin Johnson is way more talented than... Jordan Spieth is however he goes Jordan Spieth outplays him because he knows like you know if they hit it both hit it to 15 feet well Jordan's gonna have an uphill part and Dustin might have a right to left or a downhill and yet you can attack that uphill a lot more than a downhill part so it was it was a lot of like where the pins are you know where do you want to be to that pin so if you're in between clubs and shorts and uphill will you take the shorter club and it so it that was that was the biggest eye opener was just like, hey, when we get to a golf course, you know, like what's the what's gonna win this week? And I was like, Well, I don't know. Well, that wasn't good enough. So he'd be like, he'd send me a sheet, fifteen under is gonna be the winning score this week. You know, he'd average it out over the last five years or ten years that tournaments played, which is a lot harder on the Corn Ferry tour because those tournaments change. But on the PGA tour, you know, basically there's so much data and he's basically like a bookmaker. You can just go, okay, what data? I'm going to extract all this data. The winning score is going to be 15 under. You know, you got to play the par threes and par fives and eight under, the par fours and, you know, five under and the par threes and two under. Here's the top hard, the, the nine easiest holes. Here's the nine hardest holes. And then you build a strategy around. So you go, okay, well, enough to play the par fives in eight under. You got to be aggressive with the par five. So, you know, you know that you're going to be aggressive. The par threes are a low score. Okay, I'm going to give the par threes a little bit more respect. Par fours are the par fours. That was probably the biggest, you know, apart from how phenomenal he was with the golf swing, just learning how to have a goal so when you walk around the golf course you're starting to think about okay i know i'm going to play the par fives good this week par threes are going to play you know hard why are they hard you know learning you know where the pins are going to be where do i want to hit it to each pin that was just information that was absolutely priceless because you know it's not every day that you have access anybody has access to that type of information and and when they explain it to you and you see what they've won and how they've done it, you listen. 
So it was almost like he said, he's like, look, I'm, I'm like Vegas. He goes, the house, the house always wins. And he goes, I'm the house, you know? So this is what the winning score is. And, you know, it's true, you know, like on the PJ tour, the formula is 19 and five, you know, 19 birdies, five bogeys. Most weeks you shoot 14 under, you're going to win on the PJ tour. It's the guy that has the least amount of mistakes. So once you get to a level that you can hit the ball really well and you've got everything going, then it starts becoming a putting comp. But even to more than a putting comp, it becomes to a strategy like where am I hitting it to the greens, to that pin? Do I want to be short of it? Do I want to be to the right of it? Do I want to hit it past that? So it's like a whole new game. you got to learn again. Like It's like, okay, I'm a really good golfer, but now I've got to learn how to play the golf course the correct way. So that was that was a massive learning thing because I felt like I had to learn how to play golf again. Absolutely. That is really cool insight to kind of learn that and see how, uh, you know, what what hit, what things looked like through, from his perspective. One other thing that I thought was interesting that you mentioned earlier was your irons, you know, you had those tireless irons and they had a massive dispersion pattern and you switched over to Mizuno's and they had a much smaller dispersion pattern. Tell us about your process as far as getting clubs, working with clubs, getting fit for clubs, et cetera, and what you've learned along the way with that. Because, you know, when you're an amateur, you know, you don't get things for free. It's a little bit harder. You don't maybe have necessarily the resources. And even at the corn ferry level, like guys are not necessarily going to be in the perfect fit for them. Like things just happen and players have control of what goes in their bag and they could make bad decisions and good decisions on that front. But for you, what have you learned along the way as far as getting the right equipment, figure out what works best for you and the best ways to evaluate what equipment is going to work? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's probably a couple parts of that question. The first part with, with me I don't change very often. So like I'm still using a driver from two, you know, two models ago because I hit it really well. I think, well, if it's just because it's shiny, it doesn't mean it's going to be any better. So that's, I'm not one to change. Uh, when I do, you got to make sure that you're testing with, you know, like for instance, on the corn ferry tour, you get a new driver comes out and the Taylor Maverick comes up, hey, you need to try this driver. And, you know, on the range, you've got Titleist Pro VXs. Well, I use a I use a Pro V, a left dot Pro V. So it's a completely different golf ball. So they fit you with a Titleist Pro VX. It's a complete wrong. It's like, it's like going out on a racetrack and fitting you for, you know, a certain tire or suspension. But, you know, the track that you're going to race on is completely different. And... So I always do all my testing off the golf course in an environment that I've controlled. I use my own golf balls. Once I've got it all dialed in, I know I've used it. So I've used pretty much the same equipment for the most part. So my, you know, my professional career from 16 on is Dean is the same. Now, the tricky thing is, is you get a lot of kids and you're going to have them come on this podcast is... You go from not having to pay for equipment to, you know, all the equipment companies around the corn fridge, so they'll give you whatever you want to use. Every single week, there's a new putter company, there's a new grip company, there's a new whatever. And the biggest thing is, is they try to own you because they go, hey man, we'll give you X amount of dollars for a 
you know, a titles contract, but you have to use the driver, you have to use the putter, you have to use the ball, you have to use our bag, you have to wear a hat. And they kind of handcuff you into using equipment. So like, you know, there's a company out there now that I heard this year that they're trying to cut back on players and you have to use the ball. And a lot of people don't want to use the ball. You know, like Titleist is very well known for having the most used golf ball. But there's other companies that are like, you know what, if you want a 14 club deal, you know, you have to use our ball and you have to use that. So, and the money on the Corn Free Tour, honestly, is really quite, it's, I mean, it's a nothing burger. So, you know, my, my advice for people to get their card out there would be like, hey, use whatever you want, because one good week with what you're using is better than, you know, what you're going to get paid, you know, even upfront from an equipment company for for the equipment and um changing change i mean i've seen so many guys do it you know like they change driver on tuesday afternoon of a tournament week which you know i think is crazy because you know you use something that you know what you're using and it's like why would you use a brand new driver you know a day before you know the tournament or same with irons i mean wedges obviously we change wedges and we know what that's going to do it's just going to be a bit more spin but changing equipment, I would say do it in a controlled environment. Do it as, as realistic as you can in regards to like what ball you're using, you know, the weather conditions. But on the corn free like I said, you know, the equipment companies want you to use all their stuff. They're trying to get that, you know, they're a business. They, they market, you know, Tyler's number one ball in golf. Well, they know they know on the first tee what ball you're using. You know, Odyssey obviously want to win the putter count. So... Odyssey, you know, are really big into their putters and you've got different companies that are pushing different products. I mean, TaylorMade there for a while was really pushing their driver in 2017, 2018. They were pushing their driver, so they were paying guys pretty well just to use the driver. You know, and they still do it now on the PGA Tour. But, yeah, I'd say ultimately you've got to use what's, use what's good for you. Don't let the... Don't let the dollar signs get in the way of like, don't use something that you don't really love because you're going to get a little bit of money for it. Absolutely. And I think on the corn ferry can be especially tempting because the money isn't like the purses aren't crazy good, but in the like contracts for the equipment generally from what I've seen isn't like crazy money, but it's honestly, it's honestly pretty solid. Like if you have an, if you have a, just a reasonable equipment contract, from average show manufacturer for X, Y, or Z, like you could get enough to pay for your tournament expenses every week. So then everything you make on top of that is essentially like free money, uh, which can be nice. But also, as you said right there, it can also be, it can also handcuff you and impede your performance for sure. Jumping from that, you know, we talked about what you've seen out there and what you've learned. You said in 2021, you lost status, and then kind of here we are. Tell us what here we are is for you, what you kind of see your future being going forward, and what you've learned through it all. That's a really good question. So I'm 39, turning 40 this year. There's probably nothing more I would love to do than, you know, keep playing, playing golf, you know, and playing golf means like playing on the PGA Tour or you know, having a crack at the Corn Ferry Tour again. But realistically, I'm enjoying being home a little more. I mean, 
I'm enjoying being a bigger part of my son's life and my wife and I've kind of realized as well I've probably got a lot of other skill sets that I've I've acquired from playing golf and the people I've met so my immediate thing for the future is looking what does my future look like in the business world and what can I do to that's where I'm going to be putting my energy and time um, because I know that in years to come, that's what's, you know, I'm not going to be playing golf forever. I still love it and enjoy it and I want to do it. But, you know, it's very possible to be in your 40s and be a top 500 golfer in the world and have no money. And that's what I'm probably shit scared of the most. So my priorities are doing, having some other business interests that I can pursue and have a bit of a legacy so when I do want to step back from golf I'm not starting from zero you know I've been fortunate you know I've met some great friends and people and got some good opportunities to pursue so I'm hoping that I can do that and then when I do play golf I'm not 100% reliant on that week or that cut to pay for my you know mortgage or whatever it is you know like being able to go out and just go back to enjoying playing the golf with but not have the pressure of okay this is the only sole source of my income this year you know and it sucks because obviously I'd love to sit here and tell you like hey I'm going to keep grinding away and I want to get back out in the corn fruit tour I want to do every month you know which which I do but realistically I've got to think about I've got a family and I've got bills and I've got certain things so I've got to put try to in the short term put my energy into what my future looks like and then I'd love nothing more to you know I'm still I'm still just I'm still as good and just as good as what I was and I'd love the opportunity to get into an event and do something great or have a have some good finishes and maybe be able to take some pressure off and do that but I even if I did do that I still want to be able to do some other things business-wise where I can when I'm not playing golf I have another another revenue stream and something that I can put my time and energy into and um you know hopefully change a few lives and pass on some of the knowledge and stuff that I've I've learned to others absolutely I I completely understand that especially you know taking that pressure off of you like pressure sometimes a good thing sometimes it's a bad thing but when you have a little bit of financial stability everything else in life seems a little bit easier because you have to worry a little bit less. It's like when kids talk about, you know, going to college, like they play junior golf and if they don't have an offer anywhere, anything like that, you know, it can feel stressful. Cause like every time they're growing out, they're going to have to perform for somebody for something. Once they get that offer, a lot of them have, we've talked to have said, Hey, it's like a weight off my back. I was like, okay, now I can just go play. And in this case, it's, it's way bigger than that in the sense that you got a kid and a wife and a family to take care of. It's not just the status of a college offer or where you're going to go to school. It's not that uncertainty. It's even bigger. So I, I completely get that. And I think that's a unique story and we've really enjoyed talking to you about it. And it's kind of to circle, kind of get to the end here, like, the last question that we ask all of our guests is if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? Man, that's a good question. I would just say that you can do it. One thing I've, biggest thing I've learned is 
you know, you grow up watching everybody on TV and admiring them and thinking how good they are, but you probably don't give yourself enough credit sometimes for how good you are. So the biggest thing I think it, if I could just go back, it would just be like, I know that I know, like, you know, know that you know that you can do it. Like some people think they can do it, but they don't, that I know they can do it, if that makes sense. Um, so that'd probably be the biggest thing. I mean, you know, is just, just go, hey, these guys aren't any better than me and I can go do it. But, you know, as, as you go on in your career too, you, you know, you know, some things affect people different ways and, but, you know, a young college kid coming out, they've got, they're just ready to just, you know, go out there and tear it up. So yeah, I, I would just say just, you can do it. If you want it, you can do it. Perfect. Well, we appreciate you joining us. If people are trying to find you on social media, reach out to you. Where can they find you at to ask you more questions? Really, the only thing I have is my website. I'm not on social. One thing I didn't do is social media just because for multiple reasons, but just traveling and being away for 30 something weeks a year, you know, I was like, I'm not going to sit on my phone and in a hotel room. I was always trying to do different stuff and go see stuff in the towns we're in and, you know, try to play a little guitar and different things like that. So I'm not on social media just because all my friends I keep in touch with on the phone and they keep in touch with me that way. So I'm probably a little backward that way, but I do have a website that I kind of kept all my sponsors and friends and people that I met along the way follow me, which was like jamiearnoldgolf.com. So that was really the only avenue where people kind of reached out. And if, you know, obviously if we were friends, they'd call me and let me know what's up. Perfect. Be sure to go to Jamie's website. I think he keeps it updated some. Check out at least a little bit more about him and then you can reach him through there. And then if you're listening just on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This is going to help us get our message out to more people. And if you're trying to find us on social media, we do have that. So you can find us on Twitter at Tournament Code and on Instagram at The Tournament Code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and we look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf.